Yeah, I think the, the biggest advice and it's probably a cliche is don't die wondering. If you think you've got a chance to run well, yeah, and you think you know there's something in you that is telling you that you can be a great runner, you got to go after it. You can't hedge your bets and think, well, I might do this and try run. Just put everything, put all your eggs in one basket. I think a lot of the top guys in the world they have plan A and there's no plan B, so they put all their eggs in one basket. And if they don't become a good runner, then they just deal with yep. the the fallout after that. Um, I know it's difficult, and you know, in our society, because you know you've got to eventually get a job and buy a house and stuff like that. And it might be a little bit easier in, in places like Kenya. Yeah. But I know that you know, even an athlete like Pierre Bosse, I know he's got no plan B. His plan A is to be the best runner he can be, and he puts everything into that to being the best. And I just think our athletes need to do the same. And you just do that for two or three years. If it doesn't pay off, then you can get on with the rest of your life. But don't don't get to 35 or 40 and wish that you have done something differently because you'll never get that back. Yeah. You just heard from Justin Rinaldi, a man that has lived and breathed the 800 meter event for the last 30 years. He's currently the coach of the Fast 8 Track Club, a club based in Melbourne specialising in the 800 metres. He's also been the coach of the last two Australian record holders, currently Joseph Deng and in the past Alex Rowe. Justin was also quite an established 800 metre runner himself. In 1997, he was the national champion over the 800 metres and he also won two Victorian titles in the event spread 10 years apart one in 1996 and one in 2006, where at the MCG, he beat a young up-and-coming Jeff Risley. His PBs for the 800 were 147 and for the 1500, 340. We learn a lot about his group, his training methods, and he shares many stories from his athletics and coaching career. I love the message that Justin gave about going all in on what you want to do and how he encouraged any young runner to not be afraid to ask questions or approach those that you admire or are intrigued by. Thanks again, Justin Rinaldi. Welcome to the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist. I created this podcast not only so I had an excuse to talk running each and every week, something that I love to do, but more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends, and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow, and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back everyone to the Run Culture podcast. Uh, today I'm chatting to Justin Rinaldi. Justin Rinaldi is a really highly acclaimed uh, running coach um, in Australia. Um, he's based down in Melbourne and he's got a great um, yeah running group uh, that, that mainly focus on the 800 and 1500. Uh, Justin, w- welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, to start off with, do you mind um, just introducing um, yourself and giving yourself a bit of an introduction uh, to the listeners, a bit about um, your own sort of um, 
intro into running and, and then sort of what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I started running, I think, pretty late compared to some of these guys. I started in year 10. I had a tennis injury playing cricket of all sports and I dislocated my shoulder. So yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't serve for oh, just over nine months. So I took up running just for a bit of fitness and, you know, a bit of, you know, fun. I ended up running like 156 on my third race. So then I really? got hooked. Yeah, I got hooked into running and that was like 1988. And I remember watching a race and the winner, it was a women's race, but the, the winner ran 208. I thought, oh my God, I can run 156 and this is the Olympics. I can make the Olympics team. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't for a few years that I realized that the race I was watching was actually the women's heptathlon. And yep. 208, even though it's a good run, it's actually probably not Olympic standard in terms of 800 meter female running. Yep. And I really wasn't that as I thought I was, but it got me into the sport. Um, so that yeah, was no before. training, like minimal training. Yeah, yeah. I remember I, the first time I ran that 156, I was starting in lane eight. Yeah. And I was complaining because I thought I had to run the whole way in lane eight. I, I said it wasn't fair. <laughs> yeah. So I'd been running extra distance and they explained to me that I had to cut in. And yes, yeah, so I think my PB went 233, 211, 156. So it dropped down pretty quickly. Um, right. But yeah, and then I ended up, you know, continuing to run and finished running, you know, 147 and, and 340 and won a national championships in 97. So that was type my sort of running career. It was, it was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't great. And I clearly wish I had to run a lot quicker, but, you know, them the breaks. Yeah. And then, you know, sort of, I, I continued to run, you know, into my late 30s. I think I won the Vic Chance when I was, 35 and beat young Jeff Risley, who was, I think he broke his first 150 just just after that race where I beat him at the Vicks in 2006. Yep. Uh, and then I started, sort of fell into coaching in end of 2007 when I met Alex Rowe, who uh, was 15 at the time and he was a 153 runner and he was sort of looking for a new coach. Uh-huh. And I, I wasn't coaching, but, you know, I said, you know, I'll help him out for a few months and then we'll find him a real coach. Uh, and that sort of lasted for 10 years. So that six months was uh, extended. But, yeah, he ran really well under me, and it was a good, a good relationship. Nice. And, and then that sort of got you into coaching, and then from there you've extended your group, um, and it's quite big now. Yeah, yeah. So initially when Alex started, you know, he was, he was 15, and I think he was a 153 runner, and I was still running. I was probably, you know, still in 150 shape. And we did a lot of our training. Actually, we did all our training together all the way up until, I think, uh, 2013. And I got a bit injured and he ran 145 and I couldn't keep up with it. Yep. You there? Oh, yep, yep. Got you. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I got cut, cut out for a second. Off. Yeah, yeah, phone call. Yeah, so for the first five years, him and I trained together. Uh, and then he was training on his own for a while. Uh, and that's when we started trying to expand the group so he could have some training partners. And that's when Peter Ball joined in 2015. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay. And then so when when you first ran that um, 156, that third 800 of your career, um, where were you based and where did you grow up? And um, yeah, uh, from there, um, did you join a training group? Yeah, so I was I was just at Elwood High School and we didn't have a, a great sporting program at Elwood High. And I remember that was the, I think it was the Vic All Schools. And 
to get there, the, the PE teacher told me just to jump on the bus and take myself down to Olympic Park and, you know, run around. So there's no real training or anything. I can't even remember doing a training session before that. I did some, you know, runs and stuff like that. But, you know, I think it was around the canal there in Elwood, which is, uh, I think you go bridge to bridge and it's like just over 800 metres. And I'd do that once and that would be my training. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, I sort of just progressed and I joined a group. You know, I think it was like 89. There was a trip going to America. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you had to join an athletics club. So I joined Glenn Huntley. And my first ever training partner was a guy by the name of Rowan Robertson who holds the national record oh, for the four hurdles. Yeah. yeah, so he's my first training partner. And I remember getting absolutely smashed every session. Uh, I didn't realize how good he was. But, yeah, this was 89 and he would just smash me. Uh, but he ended up winning World Juniors and made the Commonwealth Games team in 1990. Uh, so I think it was a good introduction to the sport and just how hard you can train. Yep. Um, but yeah, that that was how I got started. And then from there, I sort of moved into a 800 meter group because Rowan moved to Canberra. Oh, no, he actually changed groups to Norm Osborne. Okay. Uh, and so then I joined a group uh, that was based, it was the St. Kevin's Athletics Club. And that's sort of where I spent my whole running career was running for St. Kevin's and forming relationships through that club. Yep. And, and at the time, was there a coach um, that you joined at St. Kevin's? Yeah, so I met a guy by the name of Matthew Burmeister who ran uh, 46.38 as an 18-year-old. Uh, and I was on the national 4x4 squad. Yep. Uh, and I met him there and just said, hey, I'm looking for a coach. And his coach was by the name of Peter Keogh. Uh, and he had quite a good group there because he had Matthew Burmeister. He had an athlete called Dean Keneally who won nationals in 1991, I think, and ran 146. And a few other 147 and 148 guys. So it was quite a good squad when I joined there. Uh, and that's where I spent most of my early career uh, running under Peter Keogh and, and training with that group. Yeah, nice. And in that group, um, what did you, what was a typical training week? Did you start, uh, like, obviously you had a bit of influence from um, Rowan Robinson with the, you know, coming from the 400 hurdle background and then, um, you're training with a lot of guys that are good over four and 800. Um, did you start running a little bit more and doing more aerobic stuff or was it all sort of sprint based? Uh, yeah. Did, yeah. Yeah, it was. We did a lot of the stuff and in hindsight, you know, you look back now and it's probably too much, but we did most of our sessions on the track. So we we're probably on the track, you know, Monday, Tuesday, hills on Thursday and then again back on the track on Saturday. But it was, you know, long, long reps on the track, you know, a thousand meter you know, repeats, but with three minutes rest and uh, and stuff like that, 10, 400 with a minute rest. So it was quite intense. There was no fartlek sessions or threshold type sessions that we did. Um, and, and looking back at it, you know, I, got, I got some good ideas from there that we that we did, and I still use some of the sessions that I did in the early 90s today. Yep. But I also learned a lot of mistakes too on what you shouldn't do and how you can do similar sessions off the track and, you know, not break your body down as much. I was kind of lucky that I was really resilient so I could train really hard and not get injured, but it probably led to me training too hard. I remember there was a yep. stage there where my coach tried to see if he could injure me and I was training. <laughs> yeah, it was silly, but I, I could put up with it. And we were doing really hard, intense hill sprints in the morning and then a track session that night and Jeez. doing that three, three times a week. Uh, and I just got flat. I didn't get injured. I just got flat and, yep. and overtrained. But at least I knew how hard I could push myself. Uh, but, yeah, it was, it was a good experience. 
Okay. Um, and so what are some of those sessions that you still use today that you learned from that period? Yeah, particularly I think the hill sessions that we used to do on a, a Thursday night, they were quite intense and we still do some of those hills. Um, but I still tend to rotate them. So whereas Peter would give us, uh, you know, 150 metre hills, you know, quite quick every Thursday, I might rotate and do one week of those type of hills and one week of the longer hills. Um, so we do those ones. He we he did a speed session on Monday night, but looking at now is more speed endurance type, yep. uh, where I do a pure speed session. So by that I mean you know like thirty to sixty meter reps flat out with long rest, as opposed to doing you know one hundred and fifty and two hundred meter reps where you get quite lactic. Um, yes, yeah, so that's probably the, the changes I made from that. Yeah, sure. And with the thirty to sixty meter reps with the long rest. Um, uh, when you've um, had an athlete um, since you've been coaching and you've, you've, you've given them that kind of session, um, what have you, like, do you really view that as a really key part of your training? And, and what have you really, what do you really notice by giving that session that it really improves? Yeah, I mean, what we do take a hit on is the overall yep. mileage for the week because that yep. session on the Monday is probably like 4K in total. Yep. Uh, sometimes the guys will run 20 minutes in the morning, but not often. So, you know, you know, a lot of guys might do 16K that day and we're doing four. So we're already 12Ks down the week, and, you know, compared yep. to other groups. But yep. what we do find, and particularly in 2013 when Alex went over to Europe, he ran 145 a few times. But he was all, I was always finding that his, the fields are quite big in Europe. Sometimes, you know, you get 12 or 13 athletes. And he was getting stuck at the back of the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just thought if we could work on his speed and just – you know, even if it's only half a second improvement in that first 200, but get yourself in the top four or five. Because once you get to 200, you tend to run the same pace as the rest of the field yep. for the last 600. So if you can just get in the top four or five, that's just you know eight athletes less that you have to go around in the last you know 600 metres of the race. Yep. So we made those changes and, and Steve Hooker was, you know, he came down on a Monday night and taught us a lot of the stuff that he learned with Dan Path. Uh, yep. And that made a big difference. You know, Alex got fitter from 2015 to 2014, but he also got faster. And that first 200 was really a difference we saw in him running, you know, 145.3 down to 144.4 when yep. he put the national record. Yeah. Um, and uh, with the um, hill session, like you spoke of um, the hill session um, being a pretty big session that you sort of carried on. Um, from what you learned as an athlete. Um, and I've regularly seen, um, you know, photos or videos of your squad sort of doing hill wraps around the tan or near the tan. Um, yeah. W- what are some of those sessions? Like what are, what are your favourite kind of ones that you really like giving um, those 800 guys? Yeah, so we tend to do hills on a Thursday night, most like in the winter sort of base period. And we try to do it all the way up to at least, you know, December. Yeah. Um, and we vary the hills. So we've probably got about seven different hills that we've got around Melbourne, you know, in Fitzroy Gardens or near the MCG or on the Tan. And they vary from, you know, we might be do, you know, 40 times 100 metre hills with a, a jog back rest. Yeah. Um, where we do sort of four easy and then one hard just to break it up because 40 is quite a lot. Yeah. But even then that's, you know, that's 8K in total if you count the jog back down. So it's quite, you know, it's quite a large volume. Mm-hmm. And then we progress. Sometimes we, we do, you know, up to eight times 550 metre hills uh, with a jog back rest again. So the, the hills vary between that and the volume varies from, it's always probably six to 8K on the hills. 
Um, so even if they're quick, they're still getting a lot of volume in there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And um, then back, back, like going to your career, um, you're doing all these sessions, and then were you doing um, a, a bit of just jogging around it um, as well, um, uh, just on the other days? Yeah. So I think when I ran my best, when I ran three forty and uh, one forty seven, I ran I ran one forty seven a lot. So I probably broke one forty seven eighteen times. Yeah. Okay. I did a lot, but I just never improved. But I think, you know, I was doing probably 40 to 50K a week. And I ran, when I ran around 40, I had a look at my – when I ran, sorry, 340, I had a look at my diary and I hadn't ran over 50K for the eight weeks leading up to that. Yeah, okay. So I was quite low. And then, you know, I had a, an epiphany that maybe I could be a great 1,500-meter runner. And in 2001, I really upped my mileage and I was doing 140, 150K a week. Yep. I got really fit. But I, by the time the season came, I came down. I had a stress fracture in both my shins. Yep. So I didn't, you know, I never ran any faster. Yep. So um, it's kind of a balance. But then I was training. When I look at my diaries from 2001, and I was just training ridiculously hard. I tried to keep the same intensity that I got used to, you know, doing a hard session Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. But I was also doing all this mileage, you know, 150k in between, uh, you know. And quite solid. So I looked at some of the runs there. I was always running, you know, four minute K pace or quicker. So I just, I didn't, I didn't have the right balance of balancing that intensity with the volume. Yep. And, you know, if I was doing, if I was coaching someone like that now, I'd back way back on the intensity and keep that volume there. Uh-huh. You know, if I was doing again. But you live and learn from your mistakes. Exactly. And I, I, I always say to my guys that I've made every mistake possible, so they don't have to do the same. Yep. With their career. Yeah. Like I. Like you had a like a, a little bit of uh, you were notorious for um, being a really big trainer. Um, like I, I even heard stories um, when I was growing up of some of the sessions you've done, and I, like I heard, um, and I don't know if this has just been uh, like this is a myth or exaggerated, but I heard you um, ran a really quick one k um, time trial in training, um, like like two eighteen or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I did a session with a guy called William Tuchier who ran three thirty two and a few other Kenyans. Yeah. And uh, the session was a thousand three minutes rest, eight hundred three minutes rest, four four hundreds. And the one thing I learned from training with the Kenyans is this: just the standard goes up. So when someone says a thousand meter rep, you automatically think fifteen hundred meter pace. Okay, maybe two twenty five to two thirty. And Kim McDonald, who was the coach and manager, just said to one of the Kenyans, "Yep, come through in one fifty." I didn't even think about it, but yeah, I ran two eighteen point eight, one fifty. Then we ran one fifty six. Yeah. And then I ran 59, 59, 63, 75. <laughs> last 100. But, um, you know, it was tough. And I remember Peter Fortune watching that session and he saw me run that 218 and it was just so easy. But again, you know, it's a training session, so it, does, it doesn't mean anything. But, yeah, I did sessions like that. And um, we do another session where it's five threes with four minutes. Yep. And Alex Rowe, like my personal best for that, you know, my PB for that session is – 36.8 average, which is quite quick for 300. Jeez. And Alex tried to break that and he ran like 40, uh, sorry, 37.3. And then two weeks later, he ran 144. Yep. Uh, and then Peter Vol tried to also get that, break that, that record and ran 37.1. You know, and he's a 144 guy. So both of those guys haven't been able to beat that average. Uh, but yeah, yep. I was notorious for running great sessions. Yep. But didn't, didn't race very well. Well, with that 800 PV, uh, is it was it one forty seven six two in Eugene, Oregon, USA ninety five? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so I think I was fourth at the Prefontaine Classic there, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, can you remember that race? Or? Yeah, so I remember I was actually just going there to watch um, and Kim McDonald was looking after the powers, so Susie Power and Mike Power. Yep. Uh, and they were running the meet and I was training with those guys and I went to watch and then uh, in the morning he told me, oh, I've actually got you a start in the race. <laughs> so I didn't have like any kit, so I ran in my St. Kevin's singlet and I uh, had to borrow someone's spikes. And I remember running around, I think I was like 13th with 300 to go and uh, and then, you know, 200 to go, I moved up one's place and then I just kicked past a lot of people and finished fourth. And that was, you know, it was quite quite easy and I was quite surprised at myself. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I ran 147 a few times. I think I won nationals in 147. Uh, one Vix in 147. Uh, I think I ran 146 something in a race at the Melbourne Grand Prix and got disqualified for stepping on the infield because I got knocked by the pacemaker. Oh. So, yeah, and Grant Kramer, that was a B race. So, even back then, the standard was quite good, and Grant Kramer won the B race in like 146.6. Um, so, yeah, it was quite tough back there in the late 90s with Kramer and Hannigan and Paul Byrne and a bunch of other guys. Yep. And so you mentioned Kim McDonald a couple of times. Um, did yep. you have much to do with him? And um, uh, like, um, so you trained trained with the Kenyans in that really amazing sort of one k eight hundred and four by four hundred session, and then you went over there uh, with the powers um, uh, when you did your eight hundred PB. Um, yeah, how did you get to know him? And yeah, so Kim McDonald was you know a, a popular agent. And he had a lot of Kenyans and Americans through the, you know, 90s and into the 2000s. And he was bringing a group of athletes out here. I think it started in 1995. He brought athletes like Daniel Coleman, who was just a junior back then. Um, Bob Kennedy, who, you know, broke the American record. He ran 13.58. And Steve Holman, who was a 3.31 runner. So they used to come out here and train over the Australian summer. And I just went down to Olympic Park one day and and watched them train because I was trained there on a Tuesday. Uh, and then I asked Kim if I could jump in. I was surprised there was no one else there. And, and Kim just said, yeah, you can jump in. Don't get in the way. Um, so I jumped in and me being a good trainer, I was able to not only jump in, I could do, you know, lead the reps and, and really push some of the guys. So we just formed a relationship through me jumping in. Yep. You know, and, and that's sort of every time he came to Australia from then on, I'd jump in with the sessions uh, and then went to Europe with them a few times like that. So that, that's, that was how I built that relationship with Kim. It was just being a sticky beak and uh, finding out what they were doing and then asking if I could join in. So Yeah. yeah, Nice. And then um, with the – like I know you did faster in that training session, but you, um, on the IAAF website, it's got your 1K PB as 221.8 in the Netherlands um, in 97. Uh, was that a trip? Um, did you go over um, with Kim again or um, – like- Yeah, that was a trip. I actually, I think because then in – my family or my dad, they moved to the US in uh, 1990. Yeah. I obviously stayed in Australia. So then in like 96, 97, 98, I spent a lot of time just going over and visiting my family. And that's when I got introduced to the Santa Monica Track Club. Yep. So Joe Douglas was training a group of um, athletes out at, at Santa Monica College. Uh, and some of the athletes were Cadivas Robertson, who went on, you know, and won, I think he won eight US titles and, you know, ran 143. Uh, so I, again, just being a sticky beak, went down to train, watch them train and jumped in with them. And I actually, so I spent a number of summers or US summers over there training with them. And that, that year there, I was over traveling in Europe with the San Marcos Track Club. And it, had, it was an awesome tour because had Carl Lewis there, 
had Mike Marsh there, who was an Olympic champion, had Leroy Burrell, <laughs> who was a 100-meter world record holder, had Johnny Gray, well, had um, Kevin Young, who was the, still holds the 400-meter world record, uh, 400-meter hurdle world record. Yeah. So I was traveling Europe with these guys, and it was just amazing. And again, I learned so much from just being around those guys. <laughs> well, were there some um, uh, sessions that you saw um, Robinson – or, or Johnny Gray do um, that really, uh, you know, stand out in your memory? Um, or were there some ridiculous kind of memories of, of training on the track um, that you've got from them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did some crazy. I mean, they did, they did a lot of volume on the track. You know, it wouldn't be. I remember doing a session of 50 times 150, <laughs> the 50 jog on the track. Yeah. So five sets of 10. And then we'd finish and I ran a 47 four or four seven five four hundred at the end of that Jeez. and and that and i was happy with that but johnny johnny was you know in his late 30s then and he ran 46 point and Kadivas ran 45 point really so <laughs> so you, you think you're happy running 47 but then you realize you know how quick these guys are um so yeah their sessions were quite a lot of volume you know you, you do three four hundreds and then in between that three four hundreds you do you know, six one fifties, and then they do another three four hundreds, and six one fifties, and another three four hundreds. Oh wow! So the the sessions are quite different to what we do here in Australia. Yep. Um, but again, you know, and I look at it and I think that's great. But the athletes that it seemed to work really well for were those athletes that had really good speed. You know, could run forty five, forty six without really doing any speed work. Yeah. Uh, and so they need that volume. Whereas yeah. someone like myself, or if you're a you know a forty nine, fifty second runner that doesn't work because then you just get, you know, you lose all your speed and, and you go through in 51st lap and you're just struggling. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like speaking of, of, of that, like how there's sort of some different sort of 800 runners, um, I wanted to sort of, um, yeah, move along just a little bit um, to um, the, yeah, it's the fast eight, um, um, Fast eight track club. club. Yeah, I wanted to go through yeah just some of the guys you're coaching at the moment and um, uh, yeah just who who you're um, most excited about and um, uh, like also um, just a bit of like how they're different in terms of how you train them I suppose. Um, so, yeah. 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 Well, it's not a very, it's not a big group of athletes and like you said we've sort of focused more on the eight hundred and sometimes fifteen hundred but it's more eight hundred. Is our, is our target event. Um, we've got, you know, Joseph Deng, who's a national record holder, 144.21. Peter Boll, who's got 144.56. Um, we've got Brad Mathis, who's from New Zealand, and he came fifth to the Commonwealth Games. He's around 146.06. Um, we've got, you know, Steve Nucky, he's around 147.23. Uh, but we've also got athletes like Alex Betos, who comes from the Cook Islands, um, and he, he joined us uh, November 2018. Um, of 17, but yeah, he's the national record holder. He's run 150. Um, we've got Felix Leinigan who ran 150 as a junior. So it's it's quite a good it's quite a good group. Again, it's only a small group. Um, in terms of training, yeah, um, we stick to you know a similar program because you know, like I said, we do that speed session every Monday. Yep. But we also do a longer session on the Saturday. You know, more aerobic session. So we tend to cover all bases. Yeah. So I think. It doesn't matter whether you're a four eight runner or eight fifteen runner. I think you need to work on your speed, yep. and you need to work on your endurance. So, even though everyone's doing a you know a similar program, 
uh, it does cover a lot of different bases. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you sort of work in um, at one point on speed and then one point on endurance just for, um, yeah, the 800 runners that are more that sort of 15 runner coming down and all of the 400 runner going up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You, you might look at someone like, you know, Steve Nucky and Brad Mathis and think, you know, are oh, they different athletes to Peter Bowl and Joseph Ding? And the answer is yes, they are different athletes. But the sessions that we do across the week tailor each of their strengths and each of their weaknesses. So, you know, while Pete and Joe might be a lot quicker and they might help pull along Brad and, and, and Stephen, the longer sessions sort of suit those guys more. Yeah. Um, that, that said, you know, Pete and Joe are pretty good at longer sessions too. I think people... You know, Joe's Joe's run 11.05 for a lap of the tan and he was probably running 30K a week then. So I don't think there's many guys who can run 11.05 and, you know, only do 30K a week. So Jeez. their endurance is pretty good. Yep. Um, but, yeah, yeah, we're always working on it. Yeah, awesome. Um, and uh, we've um, – so you sort of spoken of the hill sessions that you do, um, how there's those seven hills through Melbourne and you do sort of those different types. And then you've spoken of Monday, how you do that, um, the 30-metre sort of um, speed – um, and power sort of intervals and then on the Saturday um, what would your classic sort of um, sort of longer sort of more aerobic session look like for those guys yeah so every Saturday we're down at Prince's Park and there's you know a number of other groups there Bruce Griffin's group's down there uh, Steve Allinghouse's group is down there sometimes but we typically do six to eight k sort of volume yeah and the reps you know we might do four by a mile or six by a thousand, eight by eight hundred, you know, one by two mile, two by one mile. So it's kind of that kind of stuff. It's all sort of, you know, two fifty to three minute K pace. Yep. Um, and the rest is not too short. You know, you know, typically, you know, groups will do six by a thousand, eight by a thousand. They have a minute rest. We might have ninety seconds rest. So it's just slightly, slightly more rest. Um, but again, I think the quality we do is probably might be a little bit quicker because sometimes these guys can run you know, low 240s for a K on the dirt so that they're running quite fast. Yep. Yeah, okay. And are you still, are you carrying over any of those similar sort of high volume sessions you learnt from the Santa Monica Track Club um, as, as well during the week or, or not uh, so much? Not really. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think, you know, Rory's done, he did a few of them. Um, it's just, yeah, I just find, because we have a lot of quality in there, like on the Monday night. Yep. If we try to throw that in, it just sort of throws the balance out. Yep. Um, yeah, and, and they are they are quite yeah they're quite draining sessions that they are. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah, we haven't we haven't we haven't used any of them. Yep. And then what's the rest of the week sort of look like? Say like the uh, um, yeah Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, yeah. yeah. So typically, so Monday we do speed, Saturday we do the long stuff, and we do that you know to do that year round. So it doesn't matter whether it's middle of winter or in peak racing season, we do that speed session. And same with the long reps. So yep. even, you know, 10 days before Rory ran that, that 144.4, he was still doing his, you know, mile repeats on, on, the, uh, on the trails. So with those, those two days stay the similar. It's probably the Tuesday and the Thursday that change. So in winter, we might do, you know, a 3K pace session on the grass. Uh, through winter and then you know in the summer that turns to a 1500 meter pace yep and then Thursdays you know like I said we do the hills and then that you know in the summer that might change to an 800 meter pace session on the track yep so that's the Tuesday and Thursday and then Wednesdays Wednesdays you know it's it's a run plus gym and the run might be 40 to 45 minutes Friday it's just a 30 minute run and gym and then Sundays it's 
50 to 70 minutes. So I don't really count the mileage. Yep. Uh, I have a rough idea what they're doing, but I never say go run, you know, 18 kilometers. I say run 50 minutes or run 70, 70 minutes. Yep. Um, and that's the way I sort of tend to judge things. And again, those runs don't vary that much throughout the year. So, you know, Deng and Ball might run 50 minutes on a Sunday in the winter. And then in the, in the summer on the Sunday, they run 45 minutes. So it only comes down by five minutes. So it's very consistent. It's just the intensity on those Tuesdays and Thursdays that might change throughout the year. Yep. Yeah, okay. And so, so from, uh, like, this is really cool for me to hear because um, I've always just sort of been a, like, longer distance. And whenever, when I was going through juniors, just I just w- always did the longer event. And then, um, so, like, I've always yeah. um, uh, responded because um, I've never really had that much speed to just doing more Ks. Um, yeah, so yeah. with the 800, like from your experience and from all the athletes you've seen and from um, the athletes you've coached, like how, how important would you say volume is? Yeah, like typically, I mean, it's important yep. that we don't overemphasize it. Yep. So, you know, someone like, you know, Joe and Pete, they might hover around that 40 to 55K mark, you know, each week. Um, you know, Brad and, and Steve Nucky might bump up, you know, to 80, 90K. Um, you know, I've had some distance runners. You know, I was coaching Matt Clark and he was running, you know, 140K. Yep. Um, so I, if, if they're doing longer distance events, I know you definitely need to be doing that volume. Yep. Um, but I think for the 800 guys, you can get away with that kind of stuff. I know, you know, Pierre Bosse is around 142. Yep. He runs about 45, 50K a week. Mm-hmm. You know, Vasquez around 143 this year. He only does 30K a week. Um, you know, Radisha probably sat around that 50 to 60K a week. Yep. Um, so a lot of those fast guys, those 142 guys, you know, do get away with that low mileage. But there is, you know, if you're coaching someone like a Luke Matthews, who I think is very similar to Steve Cram. Yep. And, you know, and I, you know they can run, Steve Cram around 142, and I think Luke can run 144. Yep. You know, they need to run that 120, 130K a week to, to get the best out of themselves. Mm-hmm. And and then you you mentioned um, gym a couple of times um, a week. Like, how important do you see see that as part of the training week? Yeah, definitely. I I think the gym just helps balance out any you know deficiencies between your left and your right. You know, because we do run on both legs, and not everyone's equally balanced. Yep. I think we're doing all that gym stuff and just addressing on that. And I think too, when you're doing gym and you feel strong, particularly the eight hundred where. You're cutting in, you know, you're running 23, 24 for that first 200 and you're cutting in and you've got to hold your position. I just think if you feel strong, you're just better there holding position amongst that pack. Yeah. Because some of those races in Europe, they're ruthless, you know. You know, when there's money on the line and and people, you know, that's their living, they want that spot more than you and they'll take it. So you've got to hold your position. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Um. And, uh, like, I've seen um, a few sort of videos of you. Um, I think you're on the bike and you're videoing the long train of um, your squad doing sessions. Um, it looks like you really enjoy, you know, just being part of the group and, um, and uh, yeah, just fostering that sort of team team element um, of your group. Um, speak to that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, with, when I was coaching Rowie in the early stage, I did every session with him. Uh, and I'm really competitive, so... Yep. It, I remember doing sessions with Rowie and he was in 145 shape and he'd beat me in a training session and I'd get really upset <laughs> and down on myself for not being able to keep up with him. 
so I think when I got injured, it was probably a blessing because I was probably pushing myself too hard. But I really like to be a part of the group and, you know, being in amongst the sessions, like I said, whether that's on the bike or, um, you know, being really up close with them, you know, that's why I take some of those videos and stuff like that because I'm, I'm right there. Yep. And uh, it, it helps me feel a part of the session. Also, you know, we go back and we watch some of those videos just to see how their form's going. Like last night, you know, Pete and Joe were doing some 150s. And when Pete and I watched the video back, we noticed that he was slightly limping, you know, very slightly. Yep. So, you know, so that then sends us a message that, oh, okay, maybe go out there and get some treatment. Yep. You know, on your right glute if it's a little bit tight. So the videos are good for, you know, your Instagram followers. <laughs> but it's also good to actually keep a, an eye on how they're looking in the sessions and, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, they're great to watch because when they're in full flight um, and moving across the ground so well, they just, they're just looking so finely tuned. And, um, yeah, no, they're, they're pretty, pretty amazing um, athletes. Um, uh, we've, in speaking to, um, you know, treatment, how, how, how often are some of those guys getting treatment? And is that with um, uh, a bit with Nick Cross at, at Stride or? Um, yeah, Nick. Nick's been really helpful, particularly with, you know, oh, most of the guys actually in the group. He's, he's been, you know, I think nearly everyone in the group's actually seen Nick at some stage. And nice. um, he was particularly helpful when Joe first came down from Queensland because Joe had no NAS funding or no VIS uh, funding. So he was sort of looking after himself in terms of physio. And Nick, you know, really reached out there and, and gave and Joe a lot of support before he had any, you know, institute support. Uh, and we'll always be grateful for the, the support that Nick gives. Um, and then we've also got other people to help us with our gym program and, and stuff like that. But, yeah, treatment. The guys try try get a massage or physio at least once a week. Once a week. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, 2020, um, Olympic year, Tokyo's coming up. Um, uh, I mean, of the group, you've got quite a lot of guys that will be striving to make the Olympics. Um uh, who who are you most excited about at the moment, and and how is training going for the guys? Yeah, training's going going really well. I mean, I'd like, you know, obviously the standouts are going to be Joseph and Peter because they've run one forty four and they've been under that Olympic qualifying time before. Yep. So they're obviously front of mind. But then you know I got Brad Mathis who's run one forty six, you know oh six, and he's he's the type of athlete that I've been looking to progress to the one forty fives. Steve Nucky's had a really good winter. Um, he didn't run too well in the Melbourne Track Classic, but I know he's ready for a big PB. Yep. Um, and he can push down to the 146s and even the 145s. Um, Alex Bedos, again, like I said, he's, he's a represents the Cook Islands, and he should get a spot in the Olympics. So that's another athlete there. And then I'm also helping out an athlete by the name of Guy Learmonth, who's a Scottish 800-meter runner. He's run 144.7. Uh, and we've made some changes to his program over the winter, and he's really responded really well. And he's a guy who I'd hope make that British team in the 800. So, you know, I I could have five people there, you know, but I could have no one. So you never count your chickens before they hatch because uh, I've done that before. Yeah. Particularly in 2016 when I thought Alex Rowe would be a shoo-in to make it, and he didn't. So I'm not getting, I'm never going to get too far ahead of myself. I'm just looking at the next two weeks, the next three weeks, rather than looking at Tokyo. Yeah. And um, with Rowie, um, is is he um, sort of more focusing on his study now, or um, how's he going with his running? Yeah, yeah, I think you know we had a really successful you know partnership, and he ran one forty four four in twenty fourteen. But at the end, he also did really well in in school. Yep. So when he was a junior in year twelve, you know he ran one forty six two and oh, sorry one forty seven 
is one of the top juniors in the world. But we made a decision not to go to World Juniors and focus on Year 12. Yep. And he did really well in Year 12, you know, his ATAR score. I can't remember what it was. I think it was 98 or something ridiculous. Yep. Um, and then he got into medicine. So at the end of 2014, when he finished his undergrad, he got accepted into med school. And I think that decision to go into med school, where he sort of tried to balance doing med school and running, it sort of, uh, I don't think, don't think it worked out as well as he had hoped. Yep. Uh, and his running sort of went a little bit backwards from there. Um, and that's understandable, you know, at the end of the day, being a doctor and, and helping people in that form is far more important than running fast, you know, two laps around the track. Um, but yeah, everyone's going to make a decision of what's more important to their life. And I, I just don't believe that you can do both yep. because those guys who are the top 10 in the world, they're, they're not only equally as talented as, you know, he is or he was, uh, they're driven and they focus 100% on being the very best in the world. Unless you're doing that to the same you know, level, you're never going to beat them. So it was always a difficult decision. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's done what he thinks is best for him. And, yep. You know, I applaud that. Yep. And um, so will you guys go over to Europe and um, what's the plan there? Yeah, so, again, it sort of depends on how fast they can run in the domestic season. Yep. So the tricky part for me as a coach is balancing – not over racing during the domestic season and not being in peak shape. So we never try to be peak shape in the Australian season, but you want to run, you know, sort of fast enough that you can get yourself into some of those races. Um, you know, the Doha Grand Prix in early April, uh, it's a non-diamond league event, but there's an 800 on there. So, you know, the guys could run 144, 145 low, you know, somewhere in Australia, that would get them a run there. And that would open the door to further races in Europe. So, mm-hmm. you know, we plan to go to Europe, but there's no, nothing set in stone yep. yet. But we'll definitely go there at some stage. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, this might be a pretty hard question to answer, um, but who's the most talented runner you have ever um, seen or coached? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's funny because I think I look at talent in a few different ways. Yep. So if I look at Alex Rowe, you know, look at him, and I don't think anyone would assume he's one of the fastest runners they've ever seen because he probably carries a little bit of weight. But his talent, and where I see him as the most talented in that respect, was just his mental ability to get himself up for a race and his belief in himself. Yep. Uh, so he would always perform above and beyond what he's training. So I think that's a talent too. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had Rowie's mindset in my body, <laughs> then I would have been, been a much better athlete. So if I had Rowie's mindset, you know, I have no doubt that I would run 144, probably quicker, maybe 143.6, but we'll argue that later. Uh, <laughs> and then in terms of just sheer ability, uh, Joe Deng's got a lot of it. You know, he's, he is, you know, like I said, he ran 11.05 for a lap of the tan off 30Ks a week. And I think that's pretty amazing. That's incredible. Uh, you know, off that. But again, Peter Bowles, you know, talented too. He, he does some amazing sessions that, you know, in the longer sessions that just amaze me. Uh, and then someone like Brad Mathis is also talented because, you know, look at Brad Mathis. He's run only run 49 for 400. So I've run two seconds quicker than him over 400. He's only run 345 for 1500. So I've run five seconds quicker than him. Yet he's run 146.0. So he's got the talent to get the most of his abilities out when he needs to. So that's also a talent that, you know, you don't have. So, so like I said, across the range of guys, they've got great talents just across different aspects. What was it um, that you felt um, really held you back with your mindset um, when it came to um, 
yeah, race day. Yeah, I think it comes down to – I'm not going to pinpoint one coach, but you can probably rewind the interview and find out which coach I had early in my career. Yeah. But I think he was uh, quite negative. Um, and some of – like I'd say, I remember – one winter, I wanted. To, I said to him, "I want to break the Australian record at what a thousand airs." And at the stage, then it was two seventeen point five. Yeah. And I haven't even broken one fifty then. And he's saying, "Oh, well, you just concentrate on breaking one fifty first. Yeah. Whereas one of my athletes came to me and said that, I'd say, "Well, that's awesome. Let's sit down and plan how we're going to get there." Yeah. So it was little things like that that sort of put negative thoughts in my head and doubts in my head that I couldn't achieve that. Uh-huh. Um. You know, and then, you know, I still know Pete. Oh, I said his name anyway. I still know Peter, and he, and he went on and he suffered depression late in his life. Okay. And I think some of that stuff, you know, like mental health issues that he was dealing with yep. rubbed off on his athletes who he was coaching. Yep. Um, so that's why I'm also, you know, mindful being a coach. So you, even though it was a negative experience for me, yep. there's also a learning experience. So I have to make sure that me as a coach, that I'm mindful not to be too negative towards my athletes. So I'm pretty hard on them. You know, I don't get too excited about things and too excited about results but i'm also really realistic and i know that if they they want to do something i can sit down with them and plan how to get there and how to achieve that yeah so i think that's what rubbed off on me nice um and then like the 800 um i've always sort of thought of it as a pretty fiddly event um like uh you can put um like you just mentioned steve nucky before he's put in like a great winter and you know, from me just following afar, like I feel like he looks like he's just at every session and he's done everything. And then, you know, you said he was a bit disappointed um, at Melbourne Track Classic um, mm. and he's sort of in better shape um, or you feel like better shape's just around the corner. Like the 800, like because it's so tactical and it's over within a minute 40 odd sec, um, uh, you know, it's so, so quick and it's so many tactics and it all depends on how fast the first lap is and that can really affect the race. Like, do you think, um, that also is um, that mastery of the event. Like some sometimes it, it just takes a lot of them to sort of really um, work it out. Um, yeah, what what do you have to say about sort of the the eight hundred and and how hard it is um, to master like just the race? You can be really fit, and then I feel like um, you don't get your just reward sometimes. Yeah, so I think you have to definitely figure out how you run the event best. Yeah. So the way Joseph Deng runs it will be different to the way Steve Nucky runs it. Uh, and a classic example I think of is Luke Matthews, you know, everyone knows that Luke Matthews is going to go down that back straight on the second lap. Yep. Um, and that's the way he runs it best. Uh, but knowing that and beating him is two different things. So, but he's learned how to run the 800 the best to suit his abilities. Yep. Uh, and I've got to sit down with the athletes. So I know Joe, uh, likes to go hard at the start and be up near the front, and that's how he runs his best 800s. Uh, and we're still trying to work out the best way to run for Nucky. Uh, we had a plan, and it didn't really go. He didn't really stick to that plan the first 200. Yep. But you've got to learn to adjust it because not you know the race isn't going to go the way your way every way. So you've got to learn how to adjust to those those things because you might say you want to be in second place at 200, and you know there's three other athletes want to be in second place. So you've got to learn to adjust on the fly. That's why they are so so tricky. And I don't think you can make many mistakes. In the 1500, you might be able to make a mistake or two and, you know, readjust. The 800, you make a mistake here. And if you have to accelerate, again, you know, you might have to accelerate between 300 and 400 uh, and you just waste the energy that you need again for that last 200. So you can't make too many mistakes and try to recover from them. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. 
like that, that's um that's great like you ran so many 800s yourself um uh what was how did you find your best what was your best tactics what was the sort of plan that you used when you approached an 800 that worked best for you yeah i think the tactics i use and the tactics i should have used are two different things yeah so i think the tactics i use i always just sit at the back and kick home uh-huh. so in, when i won nationals i was last to the bell i think i was 47 point no 57 54.7 yep. and you know one in 147 eight so i kicked home when I ran my 3.40, I was 3.03 at 1,200, and I kicked home in 37. Uh, so I always kicked home, but when I look at my training, I was always leading every rep, pushing the pace, running really hard. And now I think about it, I should have run my races like that. I should have gone to the front, pushed it through on 51, and made people really chase me, and I probably would, would have got the best out of myself instead of relying on others to push the pace. So, yeah, the way I raced, I sat at the back. But if I could do it all over again, I'd definitely be up the front pushing the pace. And um, that's why I'm sort of keen for my guys to run the way that suits them, not the way that, you know, other people want them to run. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, what are, um, like, of all the coaches that you've had um, um, and, and sort of seen, like, um, in the past, like, who's been the biggest inspiration for your coaching um and your like your views on the sport um well i think i think i've learned a lot from every coach i've ever spoken to so i'm very inquisitive and you know like i said i went down there to see what the kenyans were doing i went down and saw what the san Marco track club were doing i remember in 96 i saw wilson kipkata at one of the grand prix i was pacing the uh rome diamond league in the 5000 and kipkata was racing there and i saw him having dinner I was asking a bunch of questions about his training, which he gave me no information whatsoever. Oh, really? But I'm all, yeah, he wouldn't tell <laughs> me <book>. anything. <laughs> yeah, and then he was, the next morning I saw him going for a run, and I said, oh, how far are you going? Can I run with you? And he's saying, no, no. But like <laughs> I've always been inquisitive and asked questions because uh, I always believe that you can learn something from every coach. So whether it be Peter Keogh, who used to coach me, yep. I spent a lot of time with Bruce Scriven, who's an amazing coach and given me lots of insights over the years. You know, Peter Fortune, who, you know, coached Kathy Freeman, but he was also coaching a really good friend of mine, Paul Cleary, you know, who ran 336. Um, I learned, you know, learned so much from, from him. And then, you know, Kim McDonald, the coaches overseas. Uh, and then now with Instagram, you can connect with so many different coaches around the world. Uh, and I'm happy to share, like, I do all our sessions on Instagram and write the times and everything because I, I don't believe there's any secrets because most of the sessions that I'm using – I've stolen from someone else. So yep. it's only fair of me then to share the information so other people can, you know, learn from our sessions as well. So, yeah, every coach I've ever spoken to, I've learned something from. Nice. What are some of the um, biggest things that you learned from um, Scrivo and, um, yeah, Peter Fortune? I think just their nature and where they, you know, interact with the athletes. Yep. Uh, and also the amount of time they invest into, into their coaching, you know, because – not many coaches actually make any money from the, the sport. Uh, and we, you know, I don't make any money from my coaching. I, and I give up all my time just to, to go down. So you have to actually love it. And I think I've learned that from, you know, people like Bruce Scriven and Peter Fortune who are just there. Like they've been there at the track every night. I've been at training since, I don't know, since 1995 or something. So I've seen those guys for 20, 25 years 
uh, at the track every time I'm there. So, you know, you just admire that. And it just shows you the type of dedication you need to be a good coach. You know, I'm sure every there's lots of coaches around Australia. I'm sure Nick Bedo is exactly the same. You know, I know he's there at every session. He invests a lot of time into his athletes. So, yeah, I think you just need that, that passion for the sport to be a good coach. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And then, um, yeah, I've just got a couple more. Um, uh, yep. And then we'll finish up because, yeah, you've been so generous with your time, Justin. Uh, That's all right. Yeah. Um, what a, um, you've mentioned a few, um, you know, good moments um, in your athletic and, and coaching career, but what have been some of the, the proudest moments and, um, yeah, best memories that you've had as a coach or an athlete? Yeah, I think uh, the first one that stands out is Rowie equaling that Australian record. I remember being with a group of friends, uh, watching that on Foxtel and watching the race live. And, you know, we had a, a hunch that he would break the record or equal the record. No, I didn't, actually didn't think he'd equal the record. But, yeah, so that was one. That was a really proud moment because, you know, he was the first Australian record holder I've ever coached. That's obviously amazing. What was your hunch that he'd like go close? Like, um, obviously the the training before and 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 like and the and the races before were they sort of indicating that yeah he's he's ready? Yeah, because he ran one forty four seventy four, um, I think two weeks before that, and I actually think that run was a lot better than his one forty four four run. Yep. Because you know he ran that last three hundred on his own, so I knew that he could run. I still think Rory could have run one forty four one forty three eight. Yep. One forty three six. Um. But I knew it was in him and, you know, and again, if I had my hindsight, we played that race. We uh, staged that race in Monaco was to be a bit, you know, conservative and not get in the way and sit at the back of the pack. Where I think if he had gone a little bit harder and put himself in the middle of the pack, he would have run a lot quicker. But yeah, I just knew he was in great shape. And that was obviously a, the first train because that was a highlight. And then, you know, Joseph Deng running 144, uh, 21. So that was again in Monaco, and this time I made sure that I was there to watch it because instead of watching on TV, yep. I thought, oh, you know, shit, I want to be there. Yeah. One of my athletes breaking Australian records. So, <laughs> you know, my wife and I flew over there. I think we were in Europe for four days, and <laughs> we saw the race, and then we dashed back home. So that was a great experience. Um, what were the celebrations yeah, like for that? Oh, it was actually low key. Yeah. I think we. I remember JT James Templeton, who's you know been a great help to Joe over the years. Uh, he bought us a bottle of champagne. And we, I don't think anyone actually finished their glass. <laughs> Joe obviously didn't drink it. I had a little bit, you know, JT had a little bit. But, yeah, we had this bottle of champagne. We actually didn't drink it. So the celebrations were, you know, they weren't over the top. Uh, but it was good. Um, what else? It was a good experience. And uh, Brad Mathis finishing fifth in the Commonwealth Games. Yep. You know, running 146.06. He ran a PB. You know, PB to qualify for Commonwealth Games in Canberra. PB in the heat. I think he ran 146.33. And then a PB in the final. And to finish fifth, that was, you know, amazing. And to finish so close to winning a medal, I think Luke was third in 145.6. So, you know, he's you know, less than half a second off winning a medal. That was amazing experience. Uh, and the other one, too, was, you know, watching Pete and Joe run 144 together, you know, coming 1-2 in the Stockholm, you know, Grand Prix in 2008. Was that, that was amazing. St. Kevin's singlet? Yeah, Pete, uh, they were both wore St. Kevin's in Monaco, but Pete wore St. Kevin's. Uh, kit in that race and you know, I only found out about I think three days before the race that he got into the race and he was over in Flagstaff so he had to jump on the plane and spend 30 hours travelling over and then he lost his, his luggage so he had to buy some spikes but to see them both battling down the straight and then seeing 144 <laughs> I think that was the first time I was actually shocked 
I knew they were capable of it, but I was shocked to actually see the result pop up. Yep. So I remember screaming at the TV at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> uh, in excitement. It was just amazing. I couldn't believe it. But yeah, those are some of the highlights, I think, over my coaching career. Nice. And you mentioned um, James Templeton before um, and how he's been pretty instrumental in Joe's um, career. He's a, is he an athlete manager and is he just been able to get some of those guys in, into some of the races or... Yeah, I think James has, James has been a manager since 1996. So yep. when the World Juniors were in Sydney, uh, he saw a couple of Kenyan athletes and he decided to manage them. One of them guy was, uh, I think his main athlete was uh, Kimitai, who ended up running 142.8, okay. 8.7. I can't remember exactly. But yeah, so he had those and then he, he manages Bernard Legat. You know, he managed him from 2000 or 99 onwards, you know, and Bernard Legat is obviously an amazing athlete. But he's also managed David Radisha you know, who's the world record holder. So he's got some great insight into the training that, you know, Radisha did, you know, Radisha's mindset, what it takes to, to be the world record holder and double Olympic champion. Yep. Uh, and he's been a great supporter of, of Joe since Joe was, you know, quite young, I think 15 years old. He's, he saw Joe running and saw the talent that he that he had. Uh-huh. Um, and so he's helped him then. And then, you know, along the way, he's picked up Pete because Pete and Joe are such great friends. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a great... Uh, you know, it's been great for Joe to have James, you know, there to support him. Uh, and likewise, it's been great for, for Peter. And it's great for me too because I always love speaking to jo- uh, to James about, you know, what what did Radisha do? What did, what did he do this? <laughs> Again, you know, I'm a sticky peak, so I yeah. ask a million questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, like, I'm just interested, like, how did um, uh, Brad Mathis and, and Peter Boll and Joe Dang sort of reach out to you? And how did they actually sort of get involved with you? And, and they obviously have moved – um, uh, interstate and, and from overseas to, to train um, together. Like, how did that all come about? Yeah, I think with Peter Ball, we had this, um, like, a training camp. I put an email or a message out to a few 800-meter guys. They want to come to Melbourne and we'll do this 800-meter training camp. And, you know, the, a few athletes came along, but two of them were Peter Ball and Dylan Stenson. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, they came along. We did, you know, we did a few days of training together and, and formed a good relationship with everyone. And then we went to Canberra a week later, you know, and Dylan Stenson improved from 149, he ran 147.7, and Peter Ball came out and ran 146.5. Uh, and that's how I sort of built that relationship with those guys. Yep. Uh, and then I think Pete was struggling there for a bit, and he missed Nationals that year just because he was finding it difficult to travel from Perth to Melbourne to race and then back to Perth and then to Sydney and then back to Perth. Uh, and he made world uni teams then but it's quite expensive quite expensive to make world unis you've got to pay seven thousand or eight thousand dollars uh so we had a few conversations about w- whether it'd be worth him going uh and then i suggest you know if he wanted to continue his running because it sounded like he was struggling in perth he should move to melbourne uh and then he moved to melbourne into 2015 and then he made the olympic team you know six seven months later yep and then likewise with brad mathis i met brad mathis's dad you know, at the Sydney Grand Prix one year, we were watching. I was actually standing right next to Mathis's dad. Yeah. And that's sort of, I formed that relationship with Brad's dad just through a conversation because I'm standing next to him. Yeah. Uh, and then Brad, you know, was struggling a bit with his running sort of at the end of that year. And he decided to ask me if I'd coach him and he was doing it by correspondence. And I think we went to Europe that year and he ran a PB, but he just decided if he wanted to make that next step, it'd be best if he moved to Melbourne. Uh, and he moved to Melbourne, you know, late in 2016. And he loves living in Melbourne now. And he's, you know, hasn't looked back since he's moved here. So I think it's important for the guys that they really want to get the best out of it to be part of the group. 
and for me to be there watching it day to day because I think you learn a lot just from seeing the sessions. Yep. You, know, you can see the times, but actually seeing it and seeing what you need to improve on is it's invaluable to be there face to face. Like you said, like when you rewatch that video footage, um, I think of Pete um, recently and saw that he was limping a little. Like it's that kind of stuff that you pick up on. Yeah, yeah, true. And just being there, like we might have a session planned. And you rock up to Lakeside and everyone knows it's really windy at Lakeside. Yeah. And you might have to adjust the session on the fly because, you know, you want to achieve something out of the session and the wind might not help you achieve that. Whereas if the athlete's by themselves and they're doing the session somewhere else, they might still do the session and they might struggle because of the wind or whatever, where I could make a slight adjustment to the session and still get more and get more out of it. So that's sort of the benefits of being there. Nice. And then, yeah, yeah. just um, to wrap up, um, you've mentioned some great points that um, a lot of runners can take away from this interview, like um, your experiences with, you know, overtraining and um, uh, and then also like just mindset on, on race day. Um, uh, uh, what else, um, if there was another parting message that, um, you know, you thought would be uh, that you, you've really learned along the way and, and thought was um, – you know, really invaluable that, um, you know, a lot of people are probably still sort of making making and, and making that error. Um, what else? Was there any other advice that you thought would probably be worthwhile mentioning? Yeah, I think the, the biggest advice, and it's probably a cliche, is don't die wondering. If you think you've got a chance to run well yep. and you think, you know, there's something in you that is telling you that you can be a great runner, you've got to go after it. You can't hedge your bets and think, well, I might, do this and try run. Just put everything, put all your eggs in one basket. I think a lot of the top guys in the world, they have plan A and there's no plan B. So they put all their eggs in one basket. And if they don't become a good runner, then they just deal with yep. the, the fallout after that. Um, I know it's difficult in, you know, in our society because you know, you've got to eventually get a job and buy a house and stuff like that. And it might be a little bit easier in, in places like Kenya. Yep. But I know that, you know, even an athlete like Pierre Bosset, I know he's got no plan B. His plan A is to be the best runner he can be and he puts everything into that to being the best. And I just think our athletes need to do the same. And you just do that for two or three years. If it doesn't pay off, then you can get on with the rest of your life. But don't don't get to 35 or 40 and wish that you have done something differently because you'll never get that back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know um, Brett Robinson has sort of um, always been like that and, and you sort of look at what he's done just in recent times and breaking 60 minutes for the half marathon. Um, like I suppose when you're all in, um, you're leaving no stone unturned and um, you're really um, trying to do everything you can to reach your potential and there's no excuses. Um, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think that's one great thing about the Melbourne Track Club yep. is that all their athletes seem to be all in. Yep. So... Um, they're 100% committed. They do all the little things right. Like, you know, someone, an athlete like Jen Lacars, I've seen her when she's injured. The amount of dedication she puts into her cross training, you know, doing hours a day on the bike, doing full sessions, weight sessions. I mean, she deserves every success she gets because she's 100% committed to being the best athlete she can be. Um, and I think if, if every other athlete was as committed as someone like her, we'd have so many good athletes in Australia. Not not disrespecting any athlete, but I think she should be someone that everyone looks up to as a role model. Nice. All right, Justin, um, I've taken up enough of your time and thanks so much for um, taking time out of your work day to, to chat. Um, there's so much gold in this interview, Ripper interview. Um, yeah, so appreciative um, for it. 
no worries. Anytime and anyone's got any questions, feel free to reach out to me and I'll try and answer them. Nice. Yeah. How can people do that? Uh, just follow me on Instagram. Yep. Got to get my Instagram followers up. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Even if you just see me at the track, come and, come and chat to me because like I've said numerous times, I was that person one day who went up and asked someone a question. So I'd never say, I would never not answer anyone's question because I know I've put myself in that position before. So just come up and say hi yep. and ask me any question you want and I'll try and answer it. Yeah, and that, that's how you grow. So it's, um, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. awesome, mate. All right, thanks so much. Um, yeah, I'll see you later. All right, thanks, Dan. Catch you later. All right, bye. Bye.